welcome to episode 75 of Tea or Books. I'm Rachel. I'm Simon. Today we are going to be discussing moral versus amoral reading. Do we bring our morals to bear upon the characters and potentially the authors that we read or can we forgive behaviour that we would otherwise condemn once we're in a fictional world? Um, and then the second half of the episode we're going to compare two texts we can't call them novels because they're not um but uh birthday letters which is a collection of poetry by ted hughes and the summer book which is a novella by toby jansen more famous for the moomin books and this is the first time we've ever talked about poetry isn't it it is and maybe the last (laughs) (laughs) probably the last Yes, I'm excited. I'm also really excited about what we're reading next time, which I'm not going to say now. There's something to get people to wait to the end, but I'm very excited about it. Yes, I'm not as excited about it. <laughs> people have probably already worked out what it is, based just on that. And Simon wanted me to read it so much that he sent me a copy. I did. I bought a copy. Okay. I, just, I forgot to say thank you to you for I know that, you, you did. You messaged me. You did. Oh, did I? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so very rude of me. You're welcome. Um, so Simon, how are you? What are you reading? What's going on in sunny Oxfordshire? Yes, it's very sunny. I'm well, thank you. It's it's edging over that line of too hot for me. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty low line, but it is pretty hot. My but my new office does have fairly good air conditioning, so that's all right. Um, good. Uh, one of the books I'm reading at the moment is called A Time to Dance, A Time to Die by John Warner. Oh. Which sounds like sounds depressing. a detective novel or something, but it is in fact non-fiction about oh. the, da- the Dancing Plague of 1518. Wow. Are you, are you familiar with the Dancing Plague of 1518? I'm not, and I feel like I'm about to become familiar with it. <laughs> uh, you Do are you tell us more, Simon. I will, whether you like it or not. Uh, so it was in Strasbourg, I think, or near there, in, in obviously 1518, and basically one lady started dancing, and became contagious and lots of other people joined in and some of them danced themselves to death. It's like contagious oh. dancing. And um, at the time, they believed that it was a curse from St. Vitus and uh, their their suggested cure was to preemptively dance. So quite a lot of people danced in order to placate him but then got swept away by the dancing anyway. They eventually realised that actually... Um, trying to stop dancing by starting dancing probably wasn't the best <laughs> approach. Uh, but yeah, it's an interesting book. It's probably probably doesn't warrant a whole book because there's not that much to say. And the Wikipedia <laughs> article might be plenty. I was, I was expecting there to be more theories. Uh, there's a few theories in there. Uh, largely that it's probably to do with the terrible conditions they were living in and hysteria slash superstition. Um, but it's interesting. I remember. I can't remember how I first found out about the dancing plague, but I found the Wikipedia article years ago, and it has fascinated me ever since. I thought I should finally actually read a book about it. I'm shocked that there is a book about it, but it um, sounds very interesting. Yeah, I've had this. I think he's written two. I think it might just be the same book under two different titles, but I'm not sure. But he's, he's managed gone... to write two books about the same thing. <laughs> That's. I feel like all non-fiction writers do that. That's a broad sweep, but. <laughs> Um, I, I very, very seldom read non-fiction that is not in some way related to literature. So I read quite a lot of non-fiction about authors' lives or about reading, all that sort of thing. But it's quite rare for me to, to branch out into medieval dancing as a topic for my books. Well, yes. But yeah, it's interesting. Well, recommend it. Hmm. I'd definitely recommend reading okay. the Wikipedia article. Um, how about you? What are you up to? I'm glad I've caught you between holidays. Yeah, you have. So I've just got back from a lovely week in Devon, um, which was glorious. Very lucky with the weather. Um, blazing sunshine, lots of sunbathing on the beach, and National Fast Properties pottering about, lots lots of cream teas. I think I had a cream Ooh, tea nice. every day. Love it. Cream or um, jam first? Jam, because you can't spread jam on top of cream. Why don't people get this? <laughs> Being one of nature's diplomats, I always do half one, half the other. I'm all things to all people. Mm. <laughs> You're saying like that, like it's not a good thing. No, it's not. <laughs> um, delicious cream teas with the jam on first. And um, yeah, lots of beautiful cliff walks, lots of lovely visits. The highlight of my trip for me 
was a trip to Greenway, which is Agatha Christie's house above I've the. Still never been. Ah, uh, it's above the Dart River, and it's wonderful. The family only gave it to the trust about ten years ago, and mm. it's they're still quite actively involved. And um, the house has got all of her stuff in it, and it's just wow. magical. And for those Christie fans who have read Dead Man's Folly, which is set there, oh, is it? Um, it is. You can go down to the boathouse and see where it all happens. Probably and um, and as a little treat, um, my friend and I, when we got back to our cottage later on in the evening, we watched the Poirot Dead Man's Folly episode, oh. which is filmed at the house. Wow. Um, and inside the house, um, we were like, oh, we've just been there, we've just been there, we've just been there. So that was really exciting. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I liked Dead Man's Folly. That was a good one. Yes, well, she read that for the first time on the holiday just before we went to Greenway. I mean, they're so quick, Agatha Christie. I can yeah. read them in an hour and a half or so. Um, so I read that one quickly. And I also read The Mirror Cracked from Side to Side. Oh, that's one of my favourites. Which like I it? thought was really good. But mm. I just, every time I read those sorts of Agatha Christie's, I'm like, who on earth would possibly have worked that out? <laughs> Miss Marple, that's who. Well, evidently. But I mean... Honestly, wonderful though. Yes, I um, published this The Mirror Cracked in America for American listeners who want to track right. it down. American readers who clearly are not expected to know any Tennyson poetry, <laughs> which is rather patronising, is it not? Isn't it? My favourite of the retitlings of Agatha Christie is that we had Hickory, Hickory Dockery, sorry, Hickory Dickory Hick- Dock Hick- here, which was published as Hickory Dockery Death in America. <laughs> <laughs> Bit on the news. But, yeah. Um, well, Yes, wonderful. Um, mm. Ariadne, Ariadne Oliver is in Dead Man's Folly, isn't she? That's right, yeah. I love her. She's so great. Wonderful character, yeah. Sort of portrait of, or self-portrait, I guess. Yes. Um, did you read much else on holiday? Yes, so I read those two Christies. I also read Chronicle of Death Foretold, which is a novella by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, which was good. Mm. Uh, it's my first thing I've read by him, actually, um, which is quite shocking, really, for me. Um and what else did I read? Oh, and I read True, The True Deceiver by Toby Anson. It was recommended when I posted about Toby Anson, and um, I thought it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Isn't it great? We should compare mm-hmm. those. That make a lot more sense than, than birthday letters. Never mind, too late. <laughs> well, I am the queen of making connections where none appear to exist, so there we are. <laughs> Lovely. Well, yes, yeah, so this topic... For the first half, which we haven't prepared particularly because we decided it moments before we started recording, <laughs> <laughs> um, is actually sort of inspired. I did ask Jenny and Jenny at Reading the End podcast to discuss something similar a while ago. And they, there's a good discussion there that I can link to in the notes. But um, it came to me because I was intrigued that they often talk about loving mafia or maybe not mafia, but sort of heist books um, right. where, where you're on the on the side of the person doing the heist. And those sorts of things. And I was wondering how they sort of squared that with their own morality, whether they just dropped it for certain types of books or if morality wasn't an issue with the books. And then Rachel suggested wisely that we also think about the author's own morality. So we'll be thinking about that as well, whether or not that affects if you want to read a book. Um, Rachel, what are your early thoughts? Well, I think that when it comes to a novel you can sort of leave your normal standards at the door a little bit because you're always aware that obviously the things that you're reading about aren't actually happening. Um, but I think for me, I quite, I quite quickly, and I think I do this in real life as well, I quite quickly decide whether I like a character or not or if I don't like a character or not. And mostly that is down to whether I approve of their actions and their thoughts or if I don't approve of their actions or their thoughts. Okay. Um, I can kind of, I, I can grow to like a character. So, for example, if a character starts out being really horrible, but they change over the course of the novel and they, they become a better person, then that's great. Um, I'm trying to think of characters who I detest in literature. And I mean, I know a lot of people, for example, think um, Holden Caulfield in The Catcher in the Rye is a horrible person and he has no morals and etc etc um which i disagree with entirely mm. um but i can see why people take an instant dislike to him um i'm just trying to think who else i i can't think of anyone off the top of my head you start and then i'll yeah so um 
I similarly, I guess, take against or like characters, and it tends to be if I t- if I really dislike a character, it's probably more because I find them annoying than I find them a terrible mm-hmm. person. Um, I'm going to mention Lord Peter Whimsey at this point, <laughs> but, ah! one of the more annoying people in fiction. But um, someone I can't remember who tweeted the other day saying how keen they were for us to finally battle out <laughs> on on Dorothy's hairs one day. Um, but and I will win. I mean, you're you're a very forceful personality. Which <laughs> I'll give in immediately. <laughs> but I'm right. He's awful. <laughs> anyway, um, and I was trying to think. I mean, I, one of the reasons that I don't particularly get on board with heist type novels or anything like um, that, although it happens more, I guess, in films and TV shows for me, is that I can't suspend the whole. But what about the security guard who got fired? Or what about the you know the pedestrians nearby who got shot in the in the shootout or whatever i can't completely suspend my sort of everyday morality when i'm looking at those those situations and in fact i don't know that if my reading morality is any different from my uh real life morality it um particularly i can't stand anything about cruelty in books particularly if it's selfish cruelty or people doing ruining other people's lives without any real gain for themselves that sort of thing will make me stop reading a book but then I was thinking, if it's really heightened, or if it's a really black comedy, then maybe I can get on board. And I was thinking of um, The Restraint of Beasts by Magnus Mills. Have you read any Magnus Mills? No, never heard of him. Ah, so he's... I'm trying to think what his most famous one is. He, All Quiet on the Orient Express, which is a great title, is ah. one of his more famous ones. Um, and he has this... He's very funny writer in this sort of arch and heightened way and so the restraint of beasts is about people who are putting up fencing for a living but then turn out to be murderers <laughs> and it's that their murders are all, all done very uh, casually and without them really understanding the moral implications of murder and it's it's very um it's not silly i guess but it is it, it exists in in a moral universe where murder isn't as big a deal as it is in this one and so i can sort of I can get on board with that because it's comic, because we, we don't see the after effects, we don't see the victims, the effect on victims. Um, and it, it's it's set in the real world, per, uh, supposedly, but it doesn't have the structures of the real world. And so that sort of thing I can get on board with, although I can't think of any examples. I was trying to think of some examples, and that is basically the only one I can think of. But I'm sure there are other versions of very heightened worlds where we're not expected to... to um, yeah, to to treat it as being exactly like the real world. If any have sprung to your mind in the time I've been talking. No, but I think it's interesting when you read, for example, a book where, you know, there's a murderer or people get killed in some way and how you can kind of distance yourself or detach yourself from um, the characters if you feel like the, the, per- the, the kind of character who's causing those things you like them or you can excuse their behavior. And I can often find myself excusing quite terrible behavior by characters if I, if I like them, um, which does sometimes make me worry about myself. But like, for example, <laughs> um, in the secret history by Donna Tart, um, which is one of my favorite books actually. And I always get my students to read it when they get to about year 10, because I find it really fascinating to talk about it with them. And it's for people who don't know, it's a campus novel, but it's it's really interesting in that it begins with us knowing who's been murdered. Um, It begins with with the murder. And we know also who's done the murder. We know that it's this group of friends who've murdered their friend. But what we don't know is why. Mm, And mm. we go through the whole novel with this Richard, who's the narrator, kind of explaining to us why it happened and in many ways, trying to excuse why they did it and basically say, well, he deserved it, you know, well, what more, more could we have done? And what I find quite disturbing about the novel is, is how plausible and, and also fair. I, I often find his explanation to be, I mean, Bunny, the character he gets murdered, is really difficult um, mm. and <laughs> not entirely nice and very manipulative himself. No, he doesn't deserve to die. But at the same time, I feel like I, I wouldn't want the others to be punished for what they've done um, because I grow to like and care about them too. So it's very interesting, that book, in making you question your own morality and your own stance of, well, why 
you know, is it, is it ever okay for somebody to do this? And, you know, really, is, is there a, ever one person who's the bad person here? Or, you know, can we, can we say that somebody who has been murdered can, should take responsibility for that? All those sorts of questions. And, living, yes. Um, yeah. And it's quite, dis- it's quite disturbing, isn't it? And that book was probably one of the first or maybe the first I've read where I've been confronted with these characters who've done a terrible thing. And I haven't entirely been able to blame them for it. And I think in the real world, I, I would absolutely. But okay. in the book, somehow I wouldn't. I don't. That's true. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, and it's an example that I'm not going to say because it is a big twist where you discover at the end that somebody has murdered somebody else. And it's just, for me as a reader, is this moment of real, real joy because you just say, oh, thank goodness that's what it was and not what I thought it was. And I, I'm really pleased. That oh, yeah. And, and I don't, yeah, I don't feel awful about it at all. And I, I don't blame um, the person. And I've never blamed the person. I've forgotten about that. Yeah, no, I never have done. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, I've always just thought, oh, well, thank goodness for that. Um, <laughs> Which is, yeah, I mean, I'd never even thought to step back and be like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with yeah. me? <laughs> but, <laughs> because you you completely believe their perception of things, don't you? That's the thing. Yeah, and you care yeah. more about the relationship than you care about um, maintaining that relationship than you do about anything else. But we can't go too much detail yeah. because people haven't read it. Um, um, send us in who you think we're talking about. <laughs> Prizes, if you're right. But yeah. um, I think maybe I find it easier to forgive or to not to forgive but to look at a book with a different morality if it's something really over the top like murder which obviously doesn't come up in my everyday life very often <laughs> um as opposed to maybe something more trivial or maybe not even trivial but i was thinking of um frenchman's creek by daphne du maurier where i find the main the heroine extremely dislikable because she's so unkind to her husband and she has this affair and you know there are many people who think it's a lovely exciting romantic novel and the french pirate is a very you know winning hero and all that sort of thing and the husband is a bit of a wet blanket but i think but he's nice he's trying his best and she's so unkind to him uh and because it's not something like murder it is i mean i mean obviously affairs aren't as common as saying an unkind word about someone or whatever but it's not as drastic um and i just found that quite hard to get on board with Whereas I think I know a lot of people, including my own mother, <laughs> on, on her side. And I'm sure that my mum does not condone affairs in real life. No. Um, I think, yeah, there's there's lots of examples that actually where people do things like cheat on husbands or leave their children and in books. And, and you're like, well, you know, they're having a terrible time and actually good for them. And I mean, someone I've never been able to get on board with is is... Emma Bovary and Madame Bovary, like that, I, and, and Anna Karenina as well. I, I never, actually, the first time I read Anna Karenina, I did think, oh, you know, she's, she was right to leave her husband and, you know, she deserves to be happy and who cares about the kid and all the rest of it. But I mean, I was 16 at the time. Re- reading it as an adult, as an adult, I was horrified by her behavior. I couldn't understand how anybody could, you know, sympathize with her, um, because she's just utterly selfish. Um, and, but I think if you read books like that at different stages in your life, or perhaps if you've been in the same situation, you can mm. sympathise or forgive. Um, but I was just thinking as well about The Crimson Petal in the White, which I read quite recently. And that's got a really interesting ending that I won't say, um, <laughs> because you don't see it coming. Um, and it's really interesting. You get to the point where you've basically got two people in a relationship, both of whom feel that they are being manipulated or badly treated by the other and the question is who is the person who is doing who is to blame here and who does do the right thing at the end and is either of their behavior justifiable and I think Mm -hmm. it's possible to look at it from both perspectives now because I know the characters so well and I've been so involved with them whereas if I were just looking at this from a real life perspective if I'd known those two people in real life I don't know whether I would I would come down more on the side of one than the other. It's interesting to think about because yeah, you guess, don't know. Sorry. You don't know. I don't think you know sometimes people in real life as well as you do in a book. That's a very good point. Yeah, you don't get access to everyone's motivations in real life no. in the same way, do you? And I think because neither of us tend to read, you know, the James Bond style of book, or you know, no. um, where where is a hired killer at the centre, then I guess we tend to read books that are more intended to reflect 
the manners and morality of real life. Yeah. Um, I guess the, the exception I was thinking of is Shakespeare, where it's something like Hamlet, he's killing all sorts of people, and you, I never, you think, oh, he's being a bit stupid, but you never particularly think he's being, in, you know, I feel up in arms about his morality, um, or at least I don't. Um, and in fact, you're just, the, the whole thing about Hamlet isn't it, is that you're thinking more just like, why can't you make up your mind, rather than, you shouldn't be killing your uncle. So Yes, I suppose that for, for me, Macbeth is... Um... Mm-hmm. is a really interesting play from that perspective because I I love Macbeth and I feel terribly sorry for him and to the point where I often get quite emotional when I'm teaching it. Um, <laughs> and I I find a lot of people like, oh, he's evil, blah, blah, blah. But actually, I can completely understand why he does everything that he does. And I sympathise with him enormously. And I don't know, I definitely wouldn't with a real life person who does all these things, but it just breaks my heart. The fact that he does it all because he can't have children. And I just, it's just the saddest thing. It's just such a sad, sad thing. Hmm. Um, and yeah, that's the play that I really connect with. I, I, lo- I love most of Shakespeare's plays, but Hamlet, I just, oh no, <laughs> I just I don't understand any of it. And Shakespeare does do that thing of having a very heightened storyline while also finding depths of humanity within it. So he's, he's yeah both those things across, I guess. Um, well, you, as you suggested, we should also talk about authors. Can mm-hmm. other well, the only example I could think of is again, in fact, Daphne du Maurier seems such an unpleasant person in real life. I've not read that Margaret Forster biography, but apparently that's what it said. But I did read some letters that she wrote to Oriol Mallet, and they just seemed so unpleasant that um it put me off slightly reading her but in the end not that much i just think um i think the only time it, it would affect me and i don't think she really does this is if she's created a character like the provincial lady or mrs miniver or one of these sort of salt of the earth characters that you're supposed to fall in love with if i'm thinking actually the author was horrible then that would be a stumbling block mm. um are there any where it's a conflict for you well i i I did find it quite difficult to read Virginia Woolf after not Virginia Woolf's novels after I read more about her as a person, mm. and I found her quite difficult, her snobbery and all the rest of it. But then I've become more um, kind and more understanding about that as I've got older, and the more I read about her, and actually, you know, all of us have got prejudices and things like that and she was a woman of her time you know you can't expect somebody just because they're an intellectual genius um to be morally ahead of the time period in which they're living um so that doesn't bother me as much i mean the only i'm just trying to think if there's anyone in particular that i don't read because i don't like i mean ian McEwan, i just i can't stand so i never read anything by him because he just bothers me (laughs) Um, he believes far too much in his own hype so I don't like that Um, anyone who I just don't like as a person you know when you read an interview and you think oh they sound like a right piece of work (laughs) Um, I I don't like reading their stuff and I I think there's also been a couple of occasions which I can't think of specifics but where I've read a novel and I've read a kind of sentiment that I felt to be very much the author's sentiment coming through about a particular issue normally to do with I think um religion or moral elements that I just think actually I really don't like that the way that you've I often like kind of dismissive comments or quite sharp or patronizing comments about belief systems or Mm, things like that mm. that I just think actually that's just that's just really bigoted and small-minded and you know that's not that's not particularly nice and I and that puts me off in person but I think that's the only time that I have been a bit put off Virginia Woolf is her Christian character in Mrs. Dalloway, whose name I can't remember, the, um, was she a tutor or something for Mrs. Dalloway's daughter? Oh, I know who you mean, yeah. yeah, yeah. Always wears the Macintosh, I think. But, um, she's very patronising and, and quite unkind about her, which again, is not Virginia Woolf necessarily giving her an opinion, but you get the impression that it probably is. Yeah. Um, and V.S. Naipaul, I've never read because he's so sexist, and that has put me off when he, he was saying he was, you know, women can't write and he's better than all female novelists ever, etc. And I was thinking, oh, oh, really? I didn't know he said that. Yeah, he, it was this, I'm trying to think how long ago it was, 10 years ago, maybe. He, um, I think he's dead now, isn't he? But yeah, he was, 
he was very very anti-women being able to write anything. It's like, well, I'm not going to read what you've written then. V.S. Sorry. Well. Yes. <laughs> it's such a stupid thing to say. It's so obviously not true. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Arrogance knows no limits, it not seems. Quite, yes. <laughs> mm. So that sort of thing would, but particularly in a more modern writer, I guess, because as you say, we can, if not necessarily forgive, at least understand where people are coming from if what if their views were the views of of almost everyone at the time they were writing. Yeah. Whereas if somebody has a view that is held at a time when clearly it's not correct, because um, like yeah, something like V.S. Nightfall, it's it's he's obviously wrong. There's a lot of people who don't hold those views. Yeah. It's yeah puts me off too much someone i did tell you say to someone that we might be doing this topic and they uh mentioned roger kipling thought do we have an issue with him being so colonial and well no because on? again you know they're products of their time if you think of anybody writing at that period i mean mm. um there's lots of talk about this now and of you know not reading certain people or taking people off the syllabus and blah 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 but i mean you can't deny the reality of that's how people used to think and if we if yeah. we stop re- if we stop reading people and say oh well, they they were a terrible person without thinking about them within the context of the time in which they were living we do them a, a tremendous disservice and we also limit what we read to stuff that we find palatable which actually where is the learning in that if we can't see where we've come from ideologically we can't also appreciate the fact that in a hundred years time a lot of the ideals and beliefs that we hold right now are going to be mocked or criticised yeah, yeah. you know so who knows what how society will develop and what how more liberal society will become or less liberal perhaps we don't know yeah um yeah i definitely think there's a there is a line of argument where you can say that you shouldn't be forced to read something that is uh, or i mean you want to be forced to read anything but it's, it's understandable if someone doesn't want to read a book that is attacking something that is part of their identity like i, I imagine it's a lot harder to read a racist book from if if you are a person who's racist being attacked in that book, then it would be oh, yes, otherwise. So um, I can understand saying, yeah, I, I, I do agree with you that we shouldn't get, just get get rid of everything from the past because it doesn't have the same morals of today. But also don't expect people to have to read those things if, if it's too painful. No, but, absolutely not. Yeah, basically. I think the problem comes in whenever you try and force anyone to do anything, whether that's delete things from syllabi or whether it's forcing people to read things that they don't want to read, etc. Um, which is not a particularly unusual point, but yes, I think I do find the whole the, the whole culture of we should be banning X Y Z uh, in the name of um, liberalism remarkably illiberal. Well, exactly. I mean, we can't pretend history didn't happen. Yes, agreed. Bizarre, bizarre attitude to have. Going well. So, what do you think, amoral or moral reader? We've, we've sort of we've had bits of both, haven't we? You know, mm. thinking. I don't know. I thought, the thing is, I'm probably more of a moral than an amoral reader, but I, I can, I do sometimes find myself scarily agreeing with things that I'm not sure I should be. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think I'm. The, I am also, particularly when we're talking about morality within books. I think I'm still more of a moral reader than an amoral reader, but probably because of the sorts of books I choose to read, rather than yeah. anything about how great I am. But, you know, maybe it's just how great I am. Who knows? Maybe it is. Maybe it <laughs> so, is. So many things can be explained by that. Now, before we get into our second half, I'm introducing a new segment, Rachel, which I've not wondered oh, about. Okay. Yeah. Of people asking us bookish advice. Oh. I put a call out on Patreon to see if anyone had any thoughts of me. Have a couple. Um, I'm going to save Elizabeth for next time, which is a great question. But Rebecca has asked where we should start with Barbara Pym, Elizabeth Taylor, and D.E. Stevenson. Oh, okay. Well, D.E. Stevenson I can't help with because I don't read that. Um, <laughs> that. <laughs> that's uh. very dismissive of me, isn't it? <laughs> I don't read that nonsense. Oh, sorry, Kate. I'll just kick the kid in. Sorry. Um, can you hear shouting, by the way? Someone's going crazy outside. I can't, but suppose okay, can. And readers might be able to hear the piano that's being played by my neighbour who lives below me, which is oh, rather how lovely. That's, that's the contrast between living in the countryside and living in London. Yeah, someone's getting a lot of abuse outside my flat at the moment. <laughs> I don't know what they've done, but someone's not happy with them. Yeah. Um, 
I think Elizabeth Taylor, I was actually having a discussion with this uh, about Elizabeth Taylor with a colleague a couple of weeks ago. She came into work very excited with herself saying, oh, I've discovered this new person. Have you heard of them? I was like, well, actually, I've got every single one of her novels on my shelf. Um, she must be very popular at work, Rachel. Well, you know. No, I was just pleased about that because normally she is yeah, the colleague no, that teaches nice. me so much about books I've never read. And I was like, finally, I've read something you haven't read. Um <laughs> So I think probably for me, I would start Elizabeth Taylor with um, Mrs. Parfrey at the Claremont. Okay. And when mm. did you start? I actually started with Angel, which is not a place I would recommend to start <laughs> because I don't. It's not really typical of her novels. It's wonderful, but yes, I also started with Angel, and I agree. It's I loved it, and it didn't stop me reading her. But I can. If if people don't like Angel, they are still quite likely they will like her, her other books. And I think it's important to start an author with a book that doesn't have to be their best one, but it does have to be indicative. Mm. Um, I think for Elizabeth Taylor, I might I might actually say uh, Mrs. Livingcott start at the beginning. I think. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that would have been my second choice. Yeah, I th- I always think. If an author is consistently good, then it makes sense to start at the beginning. But also, I think it might be my favourite of her books as well. Um, I think it has all the the ingredients of of what I love about Elizabeth Taylor, which um, yeah, would would I think set people off onto a good path. Um, but I think yeah, I don't think you can go that far wrong. As you say, Angel is probably not the best place. I think Mrs. Pelfrey would be a good one as well. As you say, um, I can't think of any that are duds that would put me off completely. No, absolutely not. No, I mean, all of them are brilliant. And, you know, you could also, if you wanted to have a more gentle introduction, start with a short story. That is a very good point. There is an enormous volume. There is, yes. Um, And they are similar enough to her novels, I think, yes, is not giving you a false impression. Um, Yes. I'll cover D. Stephen quickly. Steve Stevenson quickly, or I mean, I've only read three of her books, so um, I think Mrs. Tim of the Regiment is a nice place to start. Why not? It's a fun one. There you go. Okay, <laughs> lovely. Um, what was the last one? Barbara Pym. Barbara Pym. Oh, I love Barbara Pym. Um, I think probably I would start with Excellent Women. Uh, um, that is indeed where I started. I didn't start with excellent women. I started with Jane and Prudence and it was, I didn't love it. I think I told you this before. I didn't love it. And then, mm. um, I was persuaded to try again a couple of years later and I read excellent women and that was it for me. Um, I did start with excellent women and I actually wouldn't recommend starting with excellent women from oh. my point of view, largely because before I started Barbara Pym, I thought she'd be this idyllic rural writer or not like, you know, rural writer that Cold Comfort Farm type thing, but, you know, villages and village fates and curates and things, which she often is, but Excellent Women is set in London. I was so disappointed when I started it and it was set in London rather than a village. <laughs> um, and I... Is it Some Tame Gazelle? Is that Two Old Ladies in a Village? Probably. A lot of them are. That might be... She has such silly titles for her novels as well. But um, that might be the one that I would suggest but they say you've got options there Rebecca indeed oh she also asked if either of us have read Agatha Christie writing as Mary Westmacott which I have not no I haven't sorry Rebecca but um, I hope th- those, that advice helps you and I hope that Rachel doesn't mind me <laughs> throwing her into an advice column without warning I'm not um, sure good. so yes we'll, we'll look at yours soon Elizabeth and if if you dear listener would like some bookish advice whether that's where to start with an author a, a gift you should get someone um what you should read next how any of that sort of thing then you can email us at our new email address yes yes do you know what it is rachel uh tealbooks at something.com it is tealbooks <laughs> at gmail.com is a good guess <laughs> uh so yes do send us well or send anything you like Send us your thoughts. Let us know what you'd have chosen in the first half and indeed the second half. Yes. We'll almost certainly read out anything you send us. (laughs) (laughs) We're not inundated, it's fair to say. No. Um, But we could be. A little interlude whilst I edit. 
to say do support the Patreon if you'd like to, patreon.com forward slash T or books. As I just said, you can get in touch at T or books at gmail.com. But you can see all the books and authors mentioned at stuckinabook.com and you can find Rachel at booksnob.wordpress.com. And special thanks to Patreons Michelle, Jane, Heather, Liana, Gracie, Randy, Muck, and Elizabeth. Um, right. Okay. Next. The books, the poetry. Right. So why don't you start with saying your first impressions of the poetry? I'm interested to hear. Yes. Well, in fact, we should just very quickly summarise them, shouldn't we? So yes, I'll just, of course. I'll, yes, sorry. I'll talk very quickly about birthday letters because you, um, you've just read the summer book and I've not read it for many years. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so birthday letters was published in, oh, I don't know, I shouldn't have started then. but 1998. Thank you very much. 1998, shortly before Ted Hughes died and a long time after Sylvia Plath died. Uh, as, as I'm sure people know, but I'll just say in case they don't, Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath were married, uh, but only for a few years, and Sylvia Plath then killed herself. Um, for a long time, people blamed Ted Hughes for this, or well, some people blamed Ted Hughes for this, some people still do, he had affairs, etc. He was violent, potentially. Um, he didn't really talk about her for much of the rest of his life in public. Uh, until shortly before he died, he published Birthday Letters, which is a collection of poetry about their lives together. Um, and Basically, every poem in there is inspired by her and by their marriage. Yes. Very good. Um, So, the summer book is uh, a series of vignettes uh, depicting the life on a summer summer island, which is, uh, I gather, a a common um, tradition amongst many Scandinavian families is to go to a home on one of the islands in the archipelagos around the different Scandinavian countries. For the summer, um, often in a cabin that the family has built themselves, which is the case on this island, and it tells the story of Sophia and her grandmother. And there is also a father of Sophia's father on the island, but he's always working, so we never see him. And <laughs> um, that's one of the, the running jokes. And it's it's very much based on Toby Jansen's own family. So the grandmother being her own mother, Sophia was her niece. And um, the the man who's always working was her was her brother Lars, and this how and the house was actually the house that that she helped to build and with her brother and she also um, spent her final years there largely. Um, so it's just a wonderful kind of joyful exploration of just moments in the days and evenings of this grandmother and, and granddaughter over an unspecified period of years. Um, of them just having adventures on this island, which I discovered from the introduction to my audition, um, only takes four minutes to walk around. It's that small. Oh, wow. Mm. Um, and I believe, I've not got my copy in front of me, but was it Thomas Teal who translated it? Yes. Yes, we should, should name him. He was a From the expert. Swedish, even though a common uh, misconception, Toby Janssen was Finnish, mm. but she was from a Swedish-speaking Finnish family. She was indeed. Yeah. Uh, as in that, that whole area was. But yeah. uh, yes, so now to go back to birthday letters. My fa- I have said before probably here that I don't really read poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly don't read a collection of poetry particularly often. Um, and my first impressions, I guess, were how um, prose-like it was often, and thus how, um, I guess, how, how much more accessible I found it than I thought I might do. In that, I think a lot of them you could just put to get rid of the line breaks, and it would read like prose. Um, and yeah, I particularly liked poems that were about particular moments or particular concrete things happening. The ones that got more abstract, I found perhaps harder to, to grasp onto. And the concrete ones, are, you know, have abstract moments. But um, I, yeah, I enjoyed reading this collection, and I. Um, I did find a lot of themes came back time and again. It was a little repetitive, and I read it quite quickly. So I think, uh, I think poetry. I'm so used in my English literature study at university and before that of just getting one poem and reading it over and over again for half an hour or or whatever. Um, the, the idea of just turning pages over in a book and reading lots of poems one after another is quite alien to me. And I guess that's probably not the ideal. I, I mean, I didn't speed read it, but it, but it, they did sort of blur into 
to one for me, but I enjoyed it. Yes. What are your thoughts about it, broadly? Well, I'm glad that you enjoyed it and didn't think it was awful. Mm. Um, I, I really found it quite moving, actually. I mean, I some of the poems, I think, you can't really access unless you understand the biography behind them. Because what's quite interesting about these poems is that they are so deeply autobiographical and very, very much advertised as such. You know, they're not pretending to be sort of abstract. And it's, it's quite interesting as well, because Ted Hughes was so adamant that Sylvia Plath's writing wasn't confessional. It was, you know, she, it was, a, she kind of used her life as symbolism in her poems and, and he warned people all the time not to read what she wrote literally. Um, whether that was, yeah. To protect himself or not, I don't know. But he also, I think part of him, my understanding of what he said, part of him wanted to, wanted to say, I don't want you just to reduce her to that. She wasn't just somebody who only could write about her own life. You know, she, she mm. was, she was deeper than that. She was more intellectual than that. And, and I think so, it was sort of used as a way of attacking her as a female poet as well. Yes. Saying, oh, you're just writing conventional stuff rather than being a poet. And, Absolutely. And so, yeah. Um, you know, and, so it's interesting that he was very much open to to the, this collection being very much a window into mm. his perception of his perspective of, of the relationship between the two of them. And also, obviously, he thought that they would be damaging in some way because he made a decision not to publish them until he was almost dead. Um, and he knew he was dying, so mm. he did that on purpose. Um, I found them incredibly interesting to read interesting to read from the perspective of when you've spent i think when they came out apparently it was the fastest selling book uh, of poetry ever yeah and yeah. um i think what makes it so interesting to people is the assumption for a long time that he was a horrible husband he basically drove sylvia plath to her death and i think for me the most moving poem in the collection was sooty um where he basically describes the experience of living with somebody who wants to kill themselves and mm. the the way and I can't remember let me find it in here one of the lines where he basically says that she sucked the life out of herself as, as she sucked it out of him and the you kind of realize from that poem the incredible toll it must take on an individual to have to live constantly with somebody who you know doesn't want to be there anymore who you never know how they're going to be and you want to save them and you can't and it's that kind of sense of the struggle of, of the toll that it took on both of them is really interesting and I think I mean obviously I, maybe none of us now will know the ins and outs of all of it but I think it's really interesting that he was vilified for a very long time and in a way these poems I don't think he tries to excuse himself in them. I mean, he's perfectly honest about things, but at the same time, you read in this actually how difficult it was to live with somebody who was, you know, incredibly emotionally difficult to be with and who was also capable of inflicting a lot of pain on him as well from what he says in here. He often talks about how painful her words were and things like that. Yeah, I was slightly conflicted on on the front of the fact that he is being very conventional and he's you say he's not concealing anything there are some things like he doesn't talk about whether or not well he doesn't talk about violence towards her and there, it has been suggested that he caused her miscarriage uh, that he does write poetry about but who who knows but i've i found the whole sort of patriarchal thing of him writing this long after she has any option to give her you know she has no right of reply anymore obviously um slightly difficult i don't know if if i mean because at the same time it's i obviously she's dead he, he can't give her a right of reply so i was yeah i was slightly convinced on the whole here is the the final impression of the marriage from the man element of it but at the same time really appreciated that how how honest and um yeah moving as you say and often clearly painful for him the poems were so i don't know if you felt that tension at all as well or if i don't know I think, I think for me it was kind of he obviously knew he was dying. I don't know mm. whether he'd ever really intended to write to have these poems published. And from judging from the things that people had said about him for a long time, 
and he never said anything and he always refused and I think a lot of that as well was out of respect for his children um mm. with Plath who never knew their mother really yeah um it was a very moving poem about how one of them doesn't remember her at all yeah it? and free Frida yeah. yeah and he I think you have to kind of think about him he's yes he was her husband but he's also the father of her children and he's got to juggle those two roles and I felt like for me reading these it was him being like I just want you to know what it was like for me too um, do you know if he if they were written over a very long period or if they yeah were... they were yeah they were okay. so he'd, he'd basically written them over a long period and, and kept them all and hadn't published them and he held them back for years because he didn't want to publish them um until I think, you know, he obviously realised he was dying and then he wanted to kind of be like, well, here we are. I think one of the interesting links between this and the summer book um, is writing about death. Mm. Because obviously death comes up a lot in Ted Hughes' collection. Often it is sort of this jarring note at the end of a poem. Um, I can't remember which one it is, but it's one that ends with something like, by then you'll have lost your husband, your work and your life or something, yeah. which is particularly... Um, jarring in a good way I guess. well not good but you know successful mm-hmm. wait um and, and in the summer book um we gradually realize that her mum is the, the daughter's mum is dead don't we mm. um which i don't i can't remember if it's ever actually made explicit or if it's just something we work out but, um, no she says in the second so the second chapter she says oh she's sleeping on her own because her mum is dead oh that's right yes and um and she has these very childlike questions about death to her to her gran um in it which i say childlike i mean they're not particularly in the same sort of questions anyone might have but i like i really love i mean i love the summer book i should say that i've read read it a few times but not for a while um and i love that it does approach these quite philosophical and difficult questions without losing anything realistic and they sound like the sort of questions a child would ask and they're answered in the sort of way a grandmother might answer them without it doesn't feel like you know victorian morality tale for children or anything like that or unduly sentimental or anything it is is this wonderful sort of ethereal tone that's also quite grounded in it's also a very funny book as well um it's not just about death you sort of realize quite early it's going to be funny when the grand is looking around all and you, you originally think it's all um you know atmospheric and poetical and then discover she's looking for a false teeth or her glasses or something like that which um yeah that gives you a sense of the sort of book it might be but yeah i had forgotten that it was over several years i thought it was all about one summer together but is she different ages at different times little girl yeah and it's it says that you know one april then the next year and things like that so you don't really get any sense of um yeah, you don't really get any sense of what time went, how old the child was at the beginning or, you know, anything like that. And you don't also get a sense of the child growing up, really. It mm. seems to exist in a bit of a bubble outside of time, which I guess is the whole point. This sort of summer is being this time apart. And, um, but I, I just love the relationship between the grandmother and the granddaughter. I love the character of Sophia, who's always shouting. Um, yeah. And, you know, she's very cross about everything. Um, and the questions that she has that she sort of demands an answer and she won't be satisfied until she gets the truth. And the, I love the, the candor the of the grandmother. Well, yeah. And he just says, well, you know, that's just how it is. So just deal with it kind of thing. And also the fact that the grandmother says, well, yes, I am going to die and I probably will die quite soon, but it's not going to be today. So, you know, let's just get on with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that sense of you also see through the eyes of the grandmother that sense that she is starting to detach from the world around her and she's starting to slow down. She's become tired. She needs to sleep more. But she and she's taking an interest more in the minutiae of, of the natural world as she's losing a grip on perhaps the the larger issues of the world around her. Her centering her she centers herself on on the ferns and the mosses and the rocks mm. on the mm. island. And is really insistent on educating Sophia about how she needs to look after the natural world around her and how she needs to, you know, respect the island because it is basically a microcosm. And you, the, the balance of the world, the life there is very, very um, precarious. And that sense of passing on traditions, passing on, um, you know, the kind of this Scandinavian lore, if you like, on, from one generation to another. Yeah, and 
um, I think it is just a really beautiful book and what it has largely in common apart from death uh, with Birth of Letters is that sense of memory being throughout it and mm. I say Tavi Anson wasn't the little girl herself she's more observing that relationship rather than being part of it in real life and obviously I assume she fictionalized it to an extent yeah but um but yeah the way that like Hugh's poetry there are very detailed moments in the memory that are meant to be evocative of of a whole relationship um, and how describing the, the small detail tells you a lot about that relationship between people who um, were temperamentally quite different, maybe. Or, I mean, in, in the summer book, it's people who obviously at different stages of their life, different ends of life, and one learning from the other. In, in birthday letters, it's more obviously people from different continents, people with different life experiences, life, life, life or what they expect from life, um, trying to make a marriage together. Mm. Um, and I think, um, I don't know if, well, I mean, the book, whilst having quite a lot of realism, it is, for me, was sort of suffused in this sort of awe of, not nostalgia because it's not all happy, but but of, but it's sort of, you know, an awe of something is lent to it by memory in the way that Birthday Letters feels maybe slightly more, slightly sharper. Mm. I think, um, for me, the main connection between the two of them is is this idea of, of looking back and thinking about where you've gone wrong or where you've gone right or what things are important and that kind of thing. And also the reliability and the power of, of memory and mm-hmm. perception as well. So, for example, if you think about the summer book, Sophia's perception of those summers is going to be very different to the grandmother's perception of that, those yeah, summers. Yeah. And just like Toby Janssen's perception of of those two characters, it's uh, use of the island and experience of the island is, is probably different from their own. And, you know, it's, it's interesting you saying this, the fact that Ted Hughes chose to hold these poems back and until the last minute and, you know, Sylvia Platt didn't have the opportunity to reply to them. Um, I think that idea of the birthday letters kind of being a conversation that doesn't have an answer is quite interesting. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, a lot of those poems are direct responses to Sylvia Plath's poems that had already been published. And that's I true. I did feel quite, quite often that I needed to know more about Sylvia Plath's career. Because, I mean, there were these references to Daddy and to Ariel and to yeah. the opening lines of the bell jar and those things I did recognise, which made me assume there was a lot I did not recognize i do know yeah. that because we did it at school that she wrote a poem called weathering heights and his is yeah. sort of a reply to that but um i should also say that occasionally not that often the poems are quite funny as well yeah. um my favorite poem in there i think it's just called chaucer which is about sylvia plath declaiming chaucer to a field of cows yeah which i thought was a wonderful image and dealt with really wonderfully that was definitely my standout for me because um I know it had a hook that made it seem different to the others, whereas a lot of the others cover quite similar ground, understandably. Yeah, I, I think they are quite... A lot of the poems are are lovely poems about... And it's there's a sadness to this volume as well, because you go from poems where he talks about how much they loved each other and how excited they were by each other and how, much, and, you know, how bright the future they thought they were going to have would, would be and then you gradually see this disintegration of it all and it's it's really tragic actually to think of such a waste of life really for both of and them yes they are organized chronologically in, yeah. in their lives rather, yeah. rather than the order he wrote them in as you say so yeah um what did you make of the true deceiver which uh, what do you want to say a bit what, what it's about as we're talking about Jensen? yes so it's about uh, a, a woman who is about very small um kind of town and it's the winter as opposed to the summer in the summer <laughs> and there's a a woman called i think it's her name's katia or yeah, yeah, right. something like that who is a loner she lives with her brother they live alone everybody doesn't trust that when I mean, everyone goes to her for advice they call her sort of like a, a wise woman a witch um but nobody really is friends with her or tr- or wants to spend time with her they trust her good judgment but but she's mm-hmm. considered to be quite mean and um you know she she knows the price of everything and the value of nothing sort of thing <laughs> and um 
she decides that she wants the big house on the hill as a beautiful um, house that's lived in by a, an elderly woman who lives by herself. She's a, an artist and a writer, and she's famous. She writes famous children's books. And Catcher decides that she's going to worm her way into this woman's life so that she can get the house. And gradually she she manages to do it, and um, she does it by basically undermining the woman's confidence in everyone around them, telling her that everybody is cheating her She's the only one that she can trust and she gradually erodes her trust in all of the people that she spent her whole life living with because this woman's lived in the town forever, like from the shopkeeper to the guy who, you know, the ferry guy, the guy who does her car, the guy who does this, the guy who does that, the, her, the woman she thinks is her friend. You know, Catcher twists everybody's um, meanings of, of um, kind of motivations and every transaction that she has with somebody into, well, he's taken, he's charged you a pound too much or she said this and really she was saying this behind your back to, to, to the point where, um, yeah, she robs this woman out of all of the joy that she had in life and it's really interesting. Well, what I really liked about, I, mean, it's, I love that book, um, is that along the way, she, she, she moves in with this illustrator um, and along the way you sort of think, oh, maybe she's not actually in control because you get the sense that the act- the older lady also wanted her, to, her company, wanted her to be there yeah. and maybe has more agency than we realise. It's really cleverly done. It is really cleverly done. And it's also really interesting that we never find out whether she's right or not. Yeah, yeah. And it's all this power of suggestion and manipulation and... What I really found quite dark about it is you get to the end and and you don't know whether, um, you know, what's what's really happened at the end of this relationship and what the end will be. Um, All you know is that these two lives have kind of been destroyed. Um, And who is the true deceiver? That is the question. Who has been the one who's been, you know, is it who's been deceiving the other who's been deceiving what is it worse to deceive yourself or to be deceived by someone else you know and in fact i was uh, a guest on an episode of the mooks and the gripes podcast comparing the summer book and the true deceiver oh. which you can link to in the notes um and i chose the true deceiver actually i love it uh, but i think it's interesting that you those are the two that you've two adult books you've read by her because they are sort of the opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of her writing because the summer book is quite lovely and warm Mm. Um, and all that sort of thing and the, t- the true deceiver is is very um, yeah, you don't warm to the characters it is quite chilly in every sense of the word but brilliantly done I think yeah. um, and I think I've read everything that's been translated into English by Teviance and except for Sun City I'm saving one because I can't cope with the idea of having read all of them <laughs> but uh, there are still a few books of hers that have not been translated and I'm hoping they'll continue to come out and um, come out gradually Yes, I've got the winter book ready to read next. So. Oh, that's wonderful. See, that's short stories, and she's wonderful at short stories as well. No, so I shall look forward to that. In fact, the summer book is sort of short stories. I mean, it is. It yeah. is. They're very loosely connected chapters. I mean, I certainly wouldn't say that it was, you know, a novel in a traditional sense. You're not going to read it, and, you know, there's not necessarily... I, I think you could read the chapters out of order, and it, and it wouldn't yeah, affect yeah. the novel. That There's no continuation between the stories. Yeah, you saw vignettes at the beginning, and I think that's exactly exactly right. That's what it is. Um, so yes, teal books decision making time. What are you going to go for? Birthday letters or the summer book? Which I think we've we've managed to find some connections between. Yeah. Yes. Oh gosh, I think probably I would go for the summer book. Me too. But I did like Birthday Letters more than I thought. But Summer Book is one of my favourite books. So. I, do you know what? I really enjoyed the Birthday Letters. But I think the one thing that made me enjoy it less is because it's so reliant on biography. Mm, you have to, mm. you can't access those poems meaningfully without knowing about Sylvia Plath's poems and their relationship, which I think limits them in some respects. Yeah. So rush out and get... Get Tevi Anson, everyone. And maybe we'll do her again sometime if you've gone on a Tevi Anson spate now, which would be good. <laughs> Want to go back no. to an island? Fair play is the one to go for. Okay. Um, and what are we doing next time, Rachel? 
So we're doing Miss Hargreaves, Simon's favourite book, versus um, Miss, what's, oh, the... Boston. Miss Boston and Miss Hargreaves by Rachel Malik, which was a real favourite novel of mine that came out a couple of years ago now. Um, and, yeah, so very different Miss Hargreaves in these books. So it will be very interesting to compare them. But it won't be for a little while because I am off to America on Friday for three weeks. So um, we'll have to wait till I get back. I'm sure people will be on the edge of their seats to find out. <laughs> Which one will I pick? Nobody knows. <laughs> <laughs> Um, great and yes do get in touch with us at tealbooks at gmail.com as discussed yes and we'll see you in a few weeks time yes thanks everyone bye bye